Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. Ashley Sanchez here with Aaron Keller, and today we are joined by our elk staff specialist, Cody McKee, who he's been on our podcast a lot. He's one of our regulars, but today we're going to talk about his specialty, which is elk. So welcome, Cody. And Cody, you actually have a helper today, which we may hear in the background. (laughs) It's his daughter. So Cody, welcome and um, welcome to your assistant too. I hope we hear some baby sounds in the background. I cannot control what she may or may not do. So we'll we'll uh, we'll try and get through this and um, see how opinionated she might get. If she's anything like me, she's probably going to have a lot to say. <laughs> That's why I figured I'd just introduce her in the beginning in case she speaks up a lot during this podcast. <laughs> So yeah, um, over the last year, we've had a lot of what we call coworkers, right? Yeah. Dogs barking in the background, kids coming into the podcast, and uh, yeah, we're kind of used to it now. Yeah, exactly. So as you could hear, we're still over Zoom, um, but pretty exciting things going on at Endow. The big game application period is open, and we've had Mike Cox, our big go- bighorn sheep staff specialist. We've had Cody Schroeder on to talk about mule deer. So we were thinking, what a perfect time to talk to Cody McKee about elk. Um, Cody, we were saying we, this could go a ton of different routes. So could we just start just with, I guess, elk in Nevada in general? Where are they? What type of elk do we have here in Nevada for those who don't know? Yeah, so we have the Rocky Mountain subspecies. Um, Most of those have been brought in from other states and jurisdictions. Yellowstone National Park has been one of our major suppliers of elk, as well as Utah. Now, you know, a lot of people um, aren't really familiar with the origins of elk in Nevada. Uh, It's very, um, there just never were a lot of them here. And so I think it's pretty commonly believed that the department just established elk populations throughout the state and they weren't, they weren't native. Um, a lot of historical records going back to like your early European settlement in the state uh, shows uh, very sporadic elk observations by those European explorers. Um, very often at low densities, not a lot of them, but, but they did exist. And it's, it's believed that Elko was actually named based on elk observations from a train as settlers came moving through the area. So um, as people started to expand into the Silver State, build houses, um, you know, take up, take up shop and, and live in Nevada permanently, um, like a lot of game species, uh, they were essentially just extirpated from the state um, before, before that we had regulations on harvest and take. Um, but then fast forward to uh, the 1980s, the department really took a very proactive approach to try and re- reestablish elk in a lot of places that we thought were uh, native range um, and places that we felt like had some really good elk habitat and can, could sustain a, an established population. And um, through a lot of coordination with NGOs and land management agencies and private landowners, um, you know, 
growth can have a have a have an impact on people's livelihoods, especially in Nevada, where uh, ranching is a, is a really big part of the economy. Um, conversations among all those groups, we were able to come up with um, agreements that kind of set the stage and open the door for uh, bringing elk here into Nevada from those areas. Um, and since that time, they've really taken off. Um, Nevada is, is really well known right now is one of the premier destinations for elk hunting and our populations are very productive. So if you're somebody that's just interested in getting out and looking for those elk, um, we have a lot of opportunities where you don't have to get very far from a road um, to get into some of the habitats that they may be using and, and you might catch a glimpse of, of one or maybe even a big herd. And then for, so for anybody listening, like how much of Nevada is elk country? Like Nevada is so different from one corner to the next, like. Yeah, so <laughs> the interesting thing about elk um, is a lot of times we think of them as being uh, specialists to like high mountain timbered country, deep canyons and draws with south facing grassy slopes that they feed on and can escape to those timbered areas for cover. But really elk are, are very generalist. They're actually really able to kind of capitalize on whatever type of habitat is available to them. Granted, they still have to have the, rec the prerequisites of, you know, food, cover, water, and shelter, but some of that food can be very, very, very diverse. Um, and in a state like Nevada, where we've seen these large, like, range-type conversions due to uh, various changes in land use, as well as wildfire, or potentially just changes on the landscape being mediated by changing climates, um, elk are able to move into some of that, especially when they change to like a perennial or even annual exotic grasses and can utilize some of those resources and establish permanent occupation. And, and that's what we've been seeing, especially um, sort of in our central Nevada portions of the state, up around uh, Winnemucca and even uh, south as you go towards Tonopah, where we kind of see some of that westward expansion from our established herds into those places that are changing just a little bit, but still have that needed habitat that elk can, can use. Um, but in Nevada in particular, I mean, we see them in open sagebrush habitats, uh, rolling grasslands, deep canyons, like in the Jarbage Mountains. Um, it's, it's just a very diverse area. Um, and fortunately here, we really don't have uh, what I would say a substantial native predator population that's keeping those numbers in check. And so they are able to capitalize on things that in other states may be more marginal habitat because of a lack of security cover or places that they can maybe get away from some of those large body predators. That's a great point. I didn't, I guess I didn't think about that as much in, the, in relation to states that are around us that have other factors that keep elk you know, into cover. Um, and then I kind of want to drop back. So elk are, they're a grazer. So how has, I mean, we've had some pretty big fires over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And they, they key in on those areas over time, right? Yeah, so those, those burned habitats, maybe not immediately, maybe not within one, two, three, four years after a fire, you, you may not see that occupation of those types of habitats. Um, but over time, as the vegetation community becomes established, a lot of times, um, if the department's doing some kind of reseeding effort, 
um, in cooperation with NGOs or the land management, land management agencies, oftentimes the vegetation that establishes the most quick or the most quickly is also the kind of stuff that elk really seem to like. So bunch grasses and forage kochia, maybe even crested wheatgrass. Um, those are all things that can provide adequate nutrition for elk. Um, and as you get the right types of precipitation, um, that landscape starts to recover. Uh, maybe uh, one thing that, that I've noticed from my own ex experience elsewhere um, and within Nevada, when you have big uh, large scale wildfires, um, a lot of times, especially if it's in like a conifer forest, like pinyon juniper, those pinyon junipers were taking up a whole lot of water, right? And so a fire goes through, kills all those trees. Now there's a, a essentially a, a component of water on the landscape that's no longer being used by vegetation. And that creates more seeps and springs and things that may not have actually occurred beforehand. So um, you have that loss of, of um, both the conifer cover that's not all that valuable to elk, um, except for security. And then you also have the gain of uh, nutritional, nutrition type uh, elements of the habitat and then access to water. And so it's kind of like this one, two bang of, all right, well, we may have just lost um, a really large chunk of habitat that might be beneficial to other species, but actually for elk, that, that's actually gonna be a really good thing. Right, it opens up that understory so that grass can grow and yep. And I was nodding the whole time you were saying that because even when in my experience like small lightning strikes or anything if it happens in like a in the right spot in like an alpine setting and it opens up you know like scrub aspen or some of that stuff just makes like a circle or even a smaller it doesn't have to be large landscape type fire it could be something small and elk will key in on that and you can just watch it and see in the morning up high. So. Oh yeah. I mean, even, you know, like you said, it doesn't have to be catastrophic. I mean, even something that just sort, sort of helps to instigate like regeneration within the landscape. If it's like a, an old feral type habitat that really doesn't provide a lot of value to anything um, wildlife related, once you get a little bit of fire going through and restore that cycle, um, you can kind of just promote the, the regeneration and growth of higher quality vegetation that's gonna be, you know, not just a benefit to elk, but other wildlife species, as well as um, those uh, livestock and other species that are on the landscape. Yeah, and it doesn't always have to be fire, right? I mean, the Department of Wildlife has put a huge effort and a lot of funding towards other projects, um, mostly in Eastern Nevada, but there's some valleys that have had some, some large scale projects that uh, I think were worth mentioning, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about conifers and, and what value that may provide to wildlife. And, um, as climates have changed and we've become drier and hotter, we've also seen this encroachment of pinyon juniper down into the benchland type habitats that are often used by elk and mule deer and other wildlife. Um, so the department in cooperation with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and our Wildlife Heritage Trust Program, which are both really big contributors to these projects, we've gone through and identified areas where essentially we get the most bang for the buck, um, places where we can uh, use various mechanical or even hand treatments 
to clear out some of that uh, pinion juniper cover and potentially even use things like dragging chains behind tractors and that just that landscape, that land disturbance can, can really promote growth in an area, in a place that may otherwise be kind of stagnant. Yeah. And when you say chains, it's not like a little bike chain or like a, <laughs> you know, a wallet chain. These chains are like giant. I don't even know where they, where we get them from or like where they I, even come from. I, I yeah, it's, it's gotta be like some mine, some mining operation or something. I mean, these things are like truck tire size, just a link, um, but they have to be large enough and heavy enough in order to, to create some disturbance. If you're pulling a truck chain behind you, you know, a, a standard four wheel right. drive pickup chain, you're not really doing a whole lot. Yeah, um, so and that's, like, that's picture the like the, yeah, the biggest chain that you could imagine. And then you hook them be be between two of anybody that's listening, the two of the biggest bulldozers that you could think of, right? And then you just go across, across the landscape and you're dragging the chain and it's knocking trees over, bringing up the soil. It's doing, it's creating a big disturbance basically. And, and with that, the trees knock over, um, you know, they obviously die and then everything comes back up. The water gets hit the ground. So huge benefit to wildlife though. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, we, we try to identify the places where we're going to get the most, most benefit. Um, but hundreds of thousands of acres have been treated in this way, especially around Ely um, in White Pine County, Lincoln in Lincoln County, uh, Elko County. And um, I don't think that it's a coincidence that some of the elk and deer herds and even pronghorn herds in some of those places are, are doing really well um, compar comparative to other places in the state or, or other regions out west that may not be experiencing those types of treatments. Well, we are going to take a quick break there. A lot of information and we still have more to get into like hunting and other projects we have going on. So we will be right back after this quick break. You're listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Today we have our elk staff specialist, Cody McKeon, talking about our elk populations. And before the break, you were saying how healthy and how good our populations are looking um, right now in Nevada. And you were telling us you've been busy crunching all of those hunt stats. It's the big game application period. And I know hunters are excited to hear what you have to say about that. So Cody, I'm just gonna toss it right over to you. I don't know if the best way to start this conversation is to start out like on the negative side, but so I know uh, coming off of last hunting season, um, we heard a lot of complaints. The weather was too hot. It was smoky. A lot of those early elk hunts. Um, it was uh, lots of broken bulls in the field. People aren't seeing bulls. Um, so when our hunt statistics started coming in, which, which, you know, we collect all of that data from hunt surveys, which everyone's required to fill out, I was concerned. I mean, I kind of felt like uh, I'd seen a lot of information that made me optimistic, but I also knew there were a lot of like external factors this last season, environmental conditions that 
may have played in the success and, and created a, you know, a, an experience that we don't, that we have no control over, but we don't like to hear about after the fact. And uh, boy, was I wrong. Um, almost every harvest metric for bull elk this year um, was above our previous highs. Um, we had the highest, so this year we collected uh, elk incisors because we're trying to trying to judge our age structure in our elk populations. Um, Wait, we before, had, you, before you go, what 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 do you say? Oh, elk what? An elk incisor. <laughs> so what is an elk <laughs> incisor? <laughs> an elk incisor. Okay, let me backtrack. So we we asked hunters to collect a lower incisor from the mouth, the lower jaw of their elk that they harvested, their bull elk. We have all of the all the bull hunters, just the split, yeah, just the two lower front incisor teeth, the low, lower okay. teeth. All right, um, and the great thing about this technique is it's a really accurate way of 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 determining the age of the animal. Um, so you know, everyone kind of has their own uh, customary technique. They look at antlers and guess an age. That maybe they look at wear on teeth to guess the age. Maybe it's the body size and they're, you know, hey, that's a five-year-old bull because he's, he's an average size animal. Um, but what we really know is all those things are like heavily dependent on nutritional condition and um, other factors that may not necessarily mean that just because those characteristics meet this standard means that animal is, is X years of age. So the tried and true method is collecting these teeth. Um, and it's also important because beginning in 2018, we adopted a new harvest management objective for elk, which is based on the main bean length. And essentially we're looking at a certain proportion of the harvested bulls are gonna meet this, this, antler, this harvest objective, which is a minimum of 50 inch main beams. And through a lot of data collection and analyzing teeth in the past, we've determined that a bull that has a 50 inch main beam or longer is highly likely to be at least seven years of age, if not older. Um, and there's a really strong relationship up to seven years of age. So that gives us a sense of how many seven-year-old bulls might've been in this population um, based on that harvest information we're collecting. So now fast forwarding, we asked our hunters to submit elk teeth this season. Uh, I received over 400 incisors and I just got the results back from, uh, from that effort. And so, I don't have any adjusted age metrics or anything. I have raw information to share. Uh, what we saw is that the average age of a, of a Nevada bull that was submitted to be aged was six years old. Um, and what that means, when I go back and look at tooth data being collected since 2001, we've never had an average age of six years old or greater. Um, the closest has been 5.75 years. So, we, this last season, the oldest bulls were harvested in Nevada, at least based on the data we were collecting. Now, we didn't collect teeth the last five years, so maybe within that time frame, uh, maybe the average age was a little bit higher. But the great thing is we've also been collecting this antler metric, right? So we saw, we also saw um, across all of our hunt surveys that that average main beam length that we received on your hunt questionnaire, that was also longer than uh, any other year except for, I want to say like 2010. Um, yeah, so a decade ago. Yeah. So it's, it's I mean, been several years since we, we bet, we met this antler length metric 
And then we've also never had an average age for a harvest that high. Do we want to manage all of our elk herds to have an average age of six years old? I don't know. Um, I do think that we're, we've been trending a little bit more conservative over the last few years in our quotas. And I have a suspicion that this new harvest objective may be contributing to that. So we may have to go back and look at um, whether or not that proportion of 50 inch main beam bulls is, is hitting the target for what we'd like to offer our hunters. And, and the reason I say that is um, just because we were, we have these really old bulls that are getting harvested, that probably means that there's a lot of old bulls that aren't getting harvested. And that's an opportunity for a hunter that may be sitting on 17, 18, 19 bonus points to get out in the field and, and go hunting. Um, so we want to make sure that we're hitting that, we're hitting that number right, right at the best point of um, getting hunters in the field, but also making sure that they have a quality experience with access to mature animals that um, they come to expect when they're hunting elk in Nevada. Yeah, one thing I know about hunting is the big bull or the big buck almost always gets away. They're turning in six year and older bulls. There's some, there's a few old ones out there still. Right, and they don't get that big, you know, for no reason. They've figured out over time how to beat the pressure. They know when they start seeing headlights coming up in the middle of the night um, up these obscure two-track roads, then maybe it's time to to uh, come up with plan B and hunker down for a while. Yeah, um, and I was, was going to ask real quick before we move on from the, the age data, that's across all weapon classes and, and statewide, right? So that's, that is pooled um, for weapon classes statewide. That it does include some of our incentive tag holders. Um, but what I, you know, one of the take home messages for the listeners is um, when you start considering these factors that went into how we, how we calculated that value, um, we have the same response rate from all the same hunters this year as we did in 2015. So 43% of people that we asked to send in teeth complied with our request, just like they did in 2015. So I really think that the data, the data sets themselves are pretty comparable. Um, one interesting thing to note, where I think we're gaining the most as far as, um, I don't know, maybe getting older animals are in some of the places previously, um, we were in 2015, we were actually seeing younger bulls getting harvested. So places like the Bruno 061071, um, the average age bumped up there in our big six unit, um, even in the garbage 072 to 074, I know people probably aren't gonna believe me, um, but we saw the average age uh, take, a, take a slight bump there as well. Um, so these places that um, you know, may not be the number one choice on everyone's application seem to be kind of at least making up a little ground. I don't necessarily think that um, you know, the Bruno is gonna someday become the area 11 units, um, but I still think it's a heck of an area to put in for. And I think if you wanna hunt elk and you wanna hunt, it, hunt soon and you want a chance to chase big bulls, I think it's a place you should consider on your application. Um, how can somebody take that information or, or it's all on our website, correct? Or will be? It's a, I'm pretty sure it's up there, right, Cody? I posted yeah. it. That's my biggest thing is I post all this stuff, but I'm like, how can people use this? How does it work? Right. No, and I, I really appreciate that, Ashley. Like you, you crank that stuff out fast and get them out for our hunters to start reviewing and sorting through right away. And we throw a lot of information at people. So all of the information we've discussed um, has been posted 
The only thing that hasn't gotten done yet as of today is the summary of our elk aging or elk teeth aging. And that's because I just got results in and I'm still waiting on a few more teeth to get finished processing. Um, once that's complete and I get the information, I can kind of, I can get through and, and do some uh, quality control. Then we'll finish that summary up and get it up there. But it, it really is promising. And, and like I said, I think the take home message is uh, maybe these places that, that people are not necessarily focusing on on their application, maybe it's time to start thinking about it. Um, you know, 061071 has kind of always been considered the opportunity area. But what I saw from some of the harvest data we received this year is um, it's not just opportunity, there's there's trophies there as well. Yeah, and I definitely have um, want to give you a shout out for for taking all that time to put together those stats and kind of revisit some of the ways that we did it in the past and how you're presenting it now is I think a lot easier for or it's clearer for the the hunter to digest or it's easier for them to digest and. I know a lot of my friends and, and folks I've talked to on the phone and through social media have appreciated the way that it's presented now and the, seeing a lot more value in it as far as like the numbers are. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's really good, good to hear. I know um, there is some varying opinions. As you guys know, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of places to go that people can get the same information. And it's been my goal. Um, to try and make this as easily as consumable as possible so that people don't have to pay a special subscription to go somewhere else to get the same information that they can get from us for free. Um, and it's constantly evolving and we're constantly trying to make a better product, but um, there's a lot of great information available to, to our hunters and, and it's right there on our website, endow.org. Yep, and we talk about it in a couple different ways in that there's kind of like two camps, right? People that love looking over the numbers and like they get into the details. And then there's other people that will their application based on where they want to go hunt. So they see some place on the map and they're like, I've never been there. I think it would be cool, you know? And so maybe pick those places, but it's all in how you order your choices. So um, we've been doing some um, big game application seminars. We put all sorts of information up on our website and uh, we encourage anybody that's listening to go to there up those numbers get together with your friends um, get your applications in you can always adjust your choices and your order of your choices um, all the way till May 10th um, but yeah it's it's a time to be to be an elk hunter for sure exactly definitely check out all those resources on our top 10 resources page that's what Cody's put a ton of work into um, Cody, anything else you want to say? We're running out of time, but if there was, you gave a really good take home message to people, but anything else while we, in this last minute? Oh man, is it better just to leave, leave it at that? I almost uh, think so. I, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have even thrown that out there because we could just keep <laughs> going on. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had a public, I had a public service announcement and that is we talked a lot about hunt questionnaires and, and how we use that information to come up with this information on our website and as people are successfully successful at drawing tags this year and getting out into the field, you know, just take, take the extra time to make sure you fill that out as completely and correctly as possible so that I can spend a little bit less time trying to clean up, um, clean up some of the, the mistakes that get made when people are filling those out. Um, and, and 
you know, as we've hinted at several times, it's now is the time to be hunting elk in Nevada. Um, if you're applying here, but not applying for elk, you need to start. And I uh, guarantee that your experience here is going to be uh, equal to, if not greater than, than any other Western elk hunting experience you might be able to have. Thank you both. A lot of good information. Aaron, I like how you just took the lead on this one. Um, I feel like this, talk it, was, about. it was your um, idea and I think it was a good one and I think a lot of hunters are going to appreciate it. So thank you, Cody, um, as always for joining us. Your assistant was really quiet. I'm shocked. <laughs> you know, mom actually snuck in here and, uh, <laughs> and nabbed her really quick um, just so that we could save ourselves the embarrassment of... Um, <laughs> of her of her chattiness awesome well we appreciate you taking the time and thank you everyone for listening that does it for this week's nevada wild again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.